Good morning. How are you doing? Good? How is your daily spiritual practice going? You know if you lie, what happens your nose gets... Good to see you. Thank you for being here. And as always, thanks to the people back there who make this possible, Lauren and Joshua. Joshua had to sit up here today and make sure the announcement slides got forwarded correctly because I somehow they got corrupted. So thanks for all the careful attention they pay to that. So um, whether you're here in person or whether you're watching online, um, I hope you get a great deal of benefit out of this time to today. Um, keep remembering the theme that we're on, Love Letters to Modern Mystics, and we're trying to grow our awareness and involvement of self, sacred mystery as we walk a path illuminated by the teachings of Jesus. So let's begin uh, in silence today. Just be present, be here. May grace be in our heads and in our thinking, grace be in our eyes and in our seeing, grace be in our ears and in our hearing, grace be in our mouths and in our speaking, grace be in our hearts and in our understanding, and grace be at our ends and at our departing. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are celebrated here. Okay. The registration for the Suzanne Stable uh, Stabile event is open. So you can go to the Ordinary Life website, and I think Tim told me it's on the top page, on the opening page. We already have people um, registering. And my anticipation is that when the word gets out to the broader community, um, this event is going to sell out. So if you want to register, um, do so ASAP. Suzanne will be here for a Saturday event for which there is a fee whether you are in person or online. It's a way that we have of monitoring and regulating people who ac actually come. We don't make any money on this. We don't cover expenses. But um, there, the event on Saturday will be from 9 to 4 with a meal provided. You find out all about that when you register. If you register and you're a distance learner, we will mail your meal to you. <laughs> no, we won't. But we would like for you to register. You'll be sent a uh, registration link right before the event occurs. Uh, on Sunday, she will be back here, which will be the first Sunday in October. She will preach the first, the 8.30 and 11 o'clock service. She will teach class here. And that will be the end of it as far as the um, general population is concerned. She is going to stay an extra day on that Monday to do a staff training event, which will give you an idea of how uh, she's valued for the work that she does. On September the 10th, in this place, in Sunday school, 
um, Brooke Summers Perry is going to be here to do an introduction to the Enneagram for those of you who are not familiar with it, who may not know what your particular personality typing is. And of course, there's no charge for this event that Suzanne, uh, that uh, Brooke is going to do. Um, that clarify everything? Okay. Because I think that there's some confusion about whether there was going to be a charge for this or not, and of course, um, there is not. <clears throat> if you were to go see a spiritual director, the likelihood is that one of the very first questions they would ask you is, "Do you are you familiar with the Enneagram? And if you say no, then it just goes away. They don't pursue that, unless you might find that helpful. Um, <clears throat> I knew about the Enneagram when I first got involved in psychology training, and um, a colleague of, of ours had it on, out on the desk. We went to dinner, and I saw it, and they asked what it was, and this complicated-looking diagram on the front of the book. I now know that was Hudson and Riso's book, and they told me what it was, and I said, I don't have any need for that. I already got enough quivers, errors in my quiver. I don't need to be trained to do something else. And so I just let it go until I got involved with uh, Father Richard Rohr at the Center for Action Contemplation. And as um, we attended conferences and my relationship with Father Rohr, Richard began to grow. He asked me about my Enneagram number and I said, I don't know. And he said, I want you to get familiar with Enneagram and then uh, my, I'm sad to admit this, but in my passive-aggressive way that I can be, I said, okay, intending all the time. I was not going to do this <laughs> until um, he asked me again one time a couple of years later, hey, what, what's your Enneagram number, Bill? And I said, um, 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 he said, you haven't done it, have you? And I said, no. And he said, I'm not going to work with you anymore if you don't. I said, okay. Well, that, didn't, that nailed it down. So, um, by the way, one of the things that I discovered when we were in COVID is that the, the value of YouTube, I mean, there, you can go down a lot of rabbit holes in YouTube that are not valuable, but you can get all of Father Richard Rohr's teaching on the Enneagram on YouTube for free the entire course if you want to take it and look at it. Um, so, so it is there. The, the Enneagram is a, is a typing system that helps you learn more about yourself, ways that you can fall off the path that we are trying to walk. And each of us has a different type of personality. This is not like the Myers-Briggs. This is like what your basic set is in life that if you don't pay attention to can drag you off the path. I'm a seven on the Enneagram, so my passion is gluttony. I can't have enough books, enough magic tricks, enough recipes, enough whatever. It's just the temptation is there, right? And every one of you has likely a different personality type. And um, if you're a parent and you have more than one child, you know people come into the world 
with a basic orientation. So um, I hope you take advantage of this. And to be here when, when Brooke teaches, Brooke's a wonderful teacher and a really delightful, fun person to hang out with. So I hope you do that. So let us begin. <clears throat> all who wander are not lost, all that glitters is not gold. That's a saying in the culture that I'm sure you have heard in one form or another. It's been used by many different people in a variety of ways. Anybody know its origin? I could just make up anything, you know. Um, this was recited by Strider in Lord of the Rings. Strider is um, the rightful king of Grandor, but he does not appear to be so at the moment. And so he says this about himself, all who wander are not lost, all that glitters, the supposed king, is not gold. The saying is used to get us to look beneath the surface and to not judge anything merely by its outward appearance. And I thought of this proverb in reference to this journey that we're taking into deeper levels of awareness of understanding ourselves and understanding sacred mystery. Um, and I said that I'm going to be using the teachings of Jesus as both a guide and, and illumination. And for a while, more specifically, I'm going to be using a collection of words that we know as the Lord's Prayer. And it may be, it may appear as we are going through this that I am wandering but that's simply because I am not going to choose to deal with the Lord's Prayer in any systematic way, not phrase by phrase. Um, I'm going to use it um, as a stimulus for these times together. And I really would. There are feedback cards on the back table or online. I would, really would appreciate your feed, feedback as we go along. I have been surprised by the number of responses that I have gotten from some of you and from some who are not here uh, when I announced that I was going to talk about the Lord's Prayer. Even though Holly and I did um, go through a version of the Lord's Prayer during COVID, um, I've had people say that they wanted to know more about prayer. They weren't through with that. And also that if there was anything I could say that would make it make sense that we still use the Lord's Prayer in our worship, because they're either, they either don't like certain phrases of it or they're bored with it. They're just tired of it. So um, I thought maybe this guy might help in that. I mean, I understand why people have problems with the Lord's Prayer. The first phrase is problematic, our Father. Um, who art in heaven, Father is a problematic term to be applied to sacred mystery in heaven, locates God out there, not here. So um, I've decided to do it because I think that the Lord's Prayer is one of the best known, if not the best known 
aspect of Christian ritual that most people know. Whether they have ever been in a church on a regular basis to attend a ritual, most people know the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to call this time today Praying Naked. Now, um, I do not have an accent, even though I'm from Tennessee, but it took me years to realize that some people didn't understand my Tennessee pronunciation of the word naked because in, in Tennessee we say things correctly and the word is naked. So I got praying naked from a story that I heard from a teacher of mine about 50 years ago. The teacher was Indian. Um, he was Roman Catholic, but he had a, a very great knowledge of Hinduism and Hindu stories. And he told a story directed mostly to a Roman Catholic uh, audience about a um, persnickety aunt that visited her by marriage niece for the first time. And uh, the persnickety aunt, you need to know, is a very rigid, go to mass every day, Roman Catholic person. And the niece, who was uh, married to her nephew, was what was no, what is known in the vocabulary as a lapsed Catholic. That is somebody who you know what a lapsed Catholic is. Right. And so the uh, the aunt came because she'd never seen the three children, three grandchildren, three children of this young niece, and she wanted an experience of their. And they knew ahead of time that um, this aunt was really a critical, critical woman. So the aunt comes, and the visit goes flawlessly. I mean, things are really, really good. And she could find anything to criticize this niece about. Uh, the niece worked from home, had a very satisfactory job. She managed to parent three kids, get them off to school and do all that stuff. Um, she was happily married. Uh, she and her husband worked together to make a great home together. She seemed always to be in a good mood. She had a great relationship with her friends. Just everything, there was nothing to criticize. And so the aunt was impressed. And one day she finally said to her niece, Honey, I don't understand how you do it. How do you manage to do all these things that you do. I've never seen you in a bad mood. You always cook good meals. You are great with the kids and so forth and so on. But um, I'm curious. I never see you at your spiritual life. Uh, you don't go to mass. We didn't go to church on Sunday. Um, how do you maintain your spiritual life? Do you pray? And... Um, the young woman said, well, I, I don't actually pray as such. Well, maybe I do. I don't know. Um, when I'm taking a shower, I sometimes just stand and I'm aware of the sound of the shower falling on my body, the water coming out of the nozzle and how it feels when it touches my body. And I feel the... the water draining off my body and I'm aware how refreshing and that that is and I feel so grateful that I'm able to do this and I send energy of love and compassion to my, my family my loved ones in an increasing circle to people all over the world I guess that's when I pray 
And the aunt was just stunned. And she finally said, you mean you pray naked? <laughs> and then he said, well, I guess I do. So I'm going to invite you to pray naked. And what I mean by that is that um, I want to take some things off that may be about prayer you've worn up to now. Let's just put those aside. And maybe in the process before the day is over, this time is over, you can put some other things on and wear them. That would be good. Take a deep breath. Let your defenses down when you hear some things that may initially be uncomfortable. Um, I think that, that I want that for people who have got a certain mindset about religion, religious ideas, as well as for people who've been hurt by religion, disappointed by religion. And that's a lot of you, I know, uh, because I've heard some of your stories. So basing my teaching on or around the Lord's Prayer is also going to give me a, an opportunity to do what I love to do, and that's do some religious um, uh, literacy teaching. Um, I feel it's, I love to do it. I also feel that's my sacred obligation to do. Uh, and um, I imagine everybody here can recite the Lord's Prayer. You, you may need some prompting along the way, but I bet you could do it. <clears throat> I have done hundreds of funerals and memorial services in my ministry. And um, always in every memorial service at every funeral, the Lord's Prayer is included. Sometimes it's printed in the order of service and sometimes it's not. But, <clears throat> you know, funerals and memorial services are the only time that many people ever walk into a, a church or a religious gathering. So they don't go any other time. So it comes that time in the service where, uh, and if we use the Anglican tradition, it begins our Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, the, usually there is some liturgy that the clergy either improvises or is written, and it ends with, and as he taught us, now we pray, and then we say the Lord's Prayer. And if you look out into the congregation, you can see who's cheating. And by that, I mean who's looking at their neighbor to see what's the next phrase, what's the phrase that comes next, because a lot of people know. Across all Christianity, liberal, progressive, conservative, fundamentalist, the Lord's Prayer is used all, all across. Um, and... Um, it's usually called the Our Father in most traditions. For if you're Roman Catholic or got a Roman Catholic background, as some of you do, uh, and you pray the rosary, um, Jim Finley um, carries a rosary with him when he teaches all the time. I used to, but uh, somebody asked him, "Won't you pray that thing?" And he said, "No, but I like to carry it with me. It makes me gets my security blanket." Um, if you pray the rosary, you pray the Lord's Prayer ten times a day on that doing that, going around that, that cycle. The Anglican Rosary has a lot more latitude and various options. Um, <clears throat> all Al-Anon AA meetings begin with the Serenity Prayer, which we're going to talk about, and most of them, not all of them, but most of them conclude 
with the Lord's Prayer. And a lot of those do. So people who've never attended a religious gathering, they all, everybody knows about Easter, everybody knows about Christmas because they're commercial holidays. Um, but people know the Lord's Prayer. The other two pieces of religious liturgy, and I'm using that word very loosely now, that everybody knows, even if they never go to church. The other two pieces are 23rd Psalm. Everybody knows 23rd Psalm. And everybody knows Amazing Grace. Those are the two things that the whole culture knows something about. And they're used over and over at, at services all the time. So I'm going to say that the Lord's Prayer is something that everybody knows and that almost nobody knows anything about. There are actually two versions of the Lord's Prayer in the Christian Scriptures. One in Matthew and one in Luke. They differ in length and they differ in content. Okay? Um, to make things more confusing, the Lord's Prayer that we say in Christian churches, like the one we use in the liturgy here at St. Paul's, is not in the Bible. I bet you didn't know that. It's not either the Matthew version or the Luke version. It's what we call an ecclesiastical version. It was one that was made up for the convenience of the church. So... And people wonder, so should we be forgiven our sins? Or should we be forgiven our debts? Or should we be forgiven our trespasses? So, so let me just give you uh, the various versions of the Lord's Prayer really quickly. Um, the order of the books of the New Testament that were printed, the epistles of Paul were the first, not the Gospels. So it's, you read the New Testament and you think Matthew's first, so it was written first. Actually, that's not true. Luke was written first, but the longer version of the Lord's Prayer is in Matthew. And it reads, instead you should pray like this. Our Father in the heavens, your name be revered. Impose your imperial rule and act your will on earth as you have in heaven. You see how different this is from the one you say in church. Provide us with the bread we need for the day. Forgive us our debts to the extent we have forgiven those in debt to us. And please don't subject us to test after test, but rescue us from the evil one. That's it. In Luke's version, the prayer is, he said, when you pray, you should say, Father, your name be revered. Impose your imperial rule. Provide us with the bread we need day by day. Forgive us, forgive our sins since we too forgive everyone in debt to us. And please don't subject us to test after test. And the prayer that we use in our liturgy is this one. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as it is on earth in heaven. We don't really mean that. We pray it, but we don't really mean it. Thy will be done in my life. You want God's will done in your life? Are you really sure about that? <laughs> These people meet at the water fountain at work on Monday, and one says, the other says, hey, did you hear about Harry? What? 
What happened? Oh, God's will was done in his life. Oh, too bad. He was a nice guy, too. So, Be careful what you ask for. Or the, the, the refrigerator magnet that says, lead us not to temptation. I don't need that. I know how to find it on my own. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Okay, those are uh, three, Matthew, Luke, and the one we actually say. Just to know that the one we say isn't in the scripture. So biblical scholarship, which I can go into nauseating detail if you're interested, generally agree that Jesus said very little about prayer. If you compare what Jesus said about prayer to what Jesus said about giving or what Jesus said about fasting, prayer doesn't rank very high on the list. Um, now, as you may know, the writers of Matthew and Luke got their material from a document that now no longer exists because they didn't know each other, they lived separately, but I mean, different areas, but they come with the same material, so they had to get it from some common source. And so that common source is referred to as the Q document because the word Greek, a word in German for Q starts with, with the, the word in German for source starts with Q. And the petitions of the Lord's Prayer drawn from that source are, Father, your name be revered, impose your imperial rule, provide us with the bread we need for this day, forgive us our debts to the extent we have forgiven those in debt to us. So in the day of Jesus, it was forbidden by Jews to say the name of God. So Jesus does not do that. So the name that Jesus gives to God is the intimate word, Abba. It's one of the two words in the New Testament that we actually have in the that we have in the language that Jesus actually spoke, um, which is Aramaic. So the the word Abba is the intimate word that a child might use for a parent like Daddy, Daddy, forgive us our sins. So Jesus treated sacred things in a very paradoxical or non-dual manner as seen throughout his teachings. Now, I think it's important also to know that the way the prayer was constructed, the, the Lord's Prayer was not said by Jesus, likely. Nobody walked around with a notebook and said, hey, teach us how to pray. And Jesus said, okay, write this down. And so they wrote down the Lord's Prayer. It didn't come that way. But later on, Jesus' followers heard, like, likely put together various phrases that they had heard Jesus say over a long period of time, and they put them together for their, their support. So um, this prayer was a product of the 
early disciples, uh, early Jesus followers in the various places where they, they gathered. Finding a reference to when the prayer was used in the first two and a half, three centuries of um, the life of followers of Jesus is very difficult to do in the, in the material, in the literature. It's in a document, there's a reference to worship in a document called the Didache or the teaching. But um, a man, a German scholar by the name of Joachim Jeremias, uh, says that the reason that we don't have evidence of the prayer being used very much is that it was used secretly, it was used privately, it was used only in the gatherings of those people who were Jesus followers. So it was not out in the common parlance like it is for us at football games and you know that sort of thing. So as I've continued to read and study about the period of time of history from the time of Jesus' death until Constantine, um, I, I have grown more and more confident that this period of time was for those Jews and for people who did not take up the Jesus way, for all non-Roman citizens was a time of incredible brutality and incredible poverty. Those two things um, just are astounding. Um, I'm not going to go into detail about that now. If you want to read up on this, I mentioned a book last week called After Jesus Before Christianity, which is really a quite readable book put out by the Westar Institute of a Christianity Seminar. Um, it's a very, very interesting book about how people in that time actually lived and thought and what was important to them. Some of that we will get to. So the teachings that these people in this time of brutality and poverty created were not gentle Sunday school stories. They were stories that were designed to encourage and equip people to make it from one day to the next in a very brutal, hard time in history. The Romans did not view anybody who is not Roman as a human but as an object. There was a lot of violence. And, and so the teachings of Jesus grow out of this context of political and economic violence. People needed bread to make it from one day to the next. And if they didn't have it, they came to depend on the group of people that they were a part of to help them survive. And what people needed to be forgiven of during this time was not sins, not trespasses, but debts because money and taxation were incredibly hard for people in that time. So Jesus wanted people, among other things, he wanted to invite people into the same relationship with God that he had. And if they accepted this invitation... In community with one another, they would experience joy, freedom, love, and all the things that went along with that. Now, there are two other things I think it's important to keep in mind as we go forward with the teachings of Jesus. All of the teachings of Jesus that we have in the scripture were written and created by people who believed 
that the end of the world was around the corner. Now, they didn't mean the end of the world like the Left Behind series has it, where there's going to be this apocalypse and all that. What they meant by the end of the world was there was going to be an end to the Roman Empire. That the promise that God had made to Jews was that there was going to be this messianic leader, military leader, who was going to come and vanquish the power of Rome, and they would be given their freedom and liberty, and that's what they meant by the, by the end of the world. And um, I'm saying that so that you will know that none of these documents, including this prayer, were written with us in mind. They were written out of that context for those people in, in that context, and we have now learned them to apply that to us. Their understanding of gender, uh, their understanding of marriage, their understanding of family was very, very, very different from ours. And as we go along, what you will begin to understand, I hope, is that Jesus gave a radically new definition of family. And that was one of the things that uh, we'll get to. Going back and putting our social overlay on that culture is just a huge mistake. Um, <clears throat> There were many, many understandings of what it meant to follow Jesus during this time. There was not one standard way, one understanding. That's why there seems to be so much contradiction in the New Testament scriptures, because they came from different communities. They spoke to different things. They came out of different mindsets. So um, we've made this effort to try to make them all say the same harmonized thing when they were never intended to do that. So at the end of this time today, I'm going to do. I'm going to mention just a smidgen of the work by a very renowned biblical scholar, uh, linguistic scholar actually, Neil Douglas Klotz, who um, his work on the Lord's Prayer is just stellar. But I'm not going to spend time on that today. We may talk about it sometime um, going forward. So to summarize, just a bit of history before your eyes glaze over and we to get to the practical stuff. Um, the earliest writing on which we have, the Gospel of Matthew and, and Luke, we don't have that writing. We have hypothesis about that writing. So the, the scholars have tried to reconstruct that prayer uh, as they think it may have been in that community, and that's the one that you're looking at right now. That's a reconstruction of biblical scholarship based on what they think the prayer may have looked like. Um, in the Gospel of Thomas, there's no prayers. Jesus doesn't pray. In the earliest Gospel, at least in our collection, which is the earliest written, which is Mark, there is no Lord's Prayer. And in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus hardly ever prays. In Matthew, and you saw the longest version of the prayer in Matthew, Jesus teaches that people should not pray in public. In Luke, Jesus not only prays, prays in public, but he encourages his followers to pray and pray in public. 
And in John, Jesus doesn't pray at all. Jesus has conversations with God, which disciples over here, and they write down with their things. So it's, it's, you, it's easily to get a confused, confusing picture of Jesus at prayer or what Jesus taught about prayer because it is confusing. It's very different. Of course, each of these Gospels, as I said, was written with a different audience in mind. Each has a different agenda. So after the death of Jesus, various communities, um, now we know they were called by Jesus' names, followers of the way, people of the anointed, so forth and so on. They came into existence around the memory of Jesus. And they became a community of people, not big, 10, 15, 20 people in a community. But they, they were enlightened and empowered by their experience of either Jesus or his followers and by his teachings that they received from either him or his followers. And thus they began to be transformed and become new people. And they got together to share their memories and experiences. And they created new families in this way. And that's, again, hugely important. They shared meals together. They shared possessions together. They took care of each other. Um, and just as we do, I do this, so I'm assuming you do this, just as we embellish stories when we tell them, so did they. And they polished them up to make them have the best appeal and get the best response. And this is not the only way they kept up hope and energy, but it was one of the ways in the face of allegiance, uh, the allegiance of Roman, that Roman brutality demanded, they pledged their allegiance to Jesus. And that what began to cause them trouble. They experienced hostility um, from two sources. First, from the Roman Empire itself, um, and second, from their families of origin. You can imagine, like some families today, their kids go off and join a commune, or I don't hear much about that anymore, but that sort of thing happens. And so that's these people were leaving their families and going to be with these other things. And, and over a period of time, um, the stories began to be collected and written down as a way to explain themselves to other people and to tell the story of other people, okay? When we get into Matthew, we'll hear more about how families uh, were constituted. So I'm saying two things so far today. What we know is the Lord's Prayer did not come from Jesus. It was created by and out of the Jesus communities that they put various teachings together. And the way they told the story, uh, the way they told the story, the only thing that the disciples ever asked Jesus to do was teach us how to pray. That's the only thing. They did not go say, hey, how'd you do that water and wine thing? I want to know it. They didn't do that. So I'm hoping that the Lord's Prayer re-understood can become a source of strength, wisdom, and guidance for us, as it did for those people. It kept them focused on the risk-filled journey 
that they were about to take. And it contained, as all Jewish prophetic writings do, Jesus was a wisdom teacher in the, uh, in the prophetic Jewish tradition, it contained a self-critique. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those others. That's right, right in the prayer. And it declared where their loyalty was. It was not to Rome. It was to God. And it kept them in touch with Jesus. There is a phrase in this prayer that I want to briefly deal with because an understanding of it, I think, will help us in naked praying. It will help in removing some notions and picking up others. Um, in the original prayer, the phrase uh, was, impose your imperial rule. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is up there in heaven. There's been a great deal of debate over the centuries, a lot of ink spill, a lot of blood spill over what's meant by this phrase. Where is the kingdom of God? What does it mean? Is it political? Is it here? Is it in? Is it up? Is it in the future? What is the kingdom of God meant? Now, there is no doubt in any scholar's mind that I have read and respected that at the time of Jesus, what the people anticipated and longed for, and were actually disappointed in Jesus about, was that they wanted an imperial military victor to come in and take over and beat the daylights out of Rome and put the Jews in power. That's what they wanted more than anything, and that's what they hoped for, and that's what part of this prayer is an indication of. It wasn't when I get to heaven kind of thing. Um, if you've heard it, hung out with me very long, you, you likely know that one of my influential teachers was a union analyst by the name of Robert Johnson. Robert was an amazing, gifted union analyst whose story is worth several sessions here. It's just an amazing time that he had with Carl Jung himself and how he was set on a path to do the teaching and writing that he did. Robert died a few years ago in his 90s, and he lived in San Diego. Um, he was a great teacher and a, and a very um, shy man. Um, I had heard, seen Robert lecture many times and did not know until I read his biography, Balancing Heaven and Earth, that when he was a young boy living in Portland, Oregon, his parents had divorced and he was walking between a parent's house one day and a car lost control, went up on the sidewalk and hit Robert and he ended up uh, losing a leg and he had a prosthetic leg. I didn't know that. I mean, it wouldn't, he'd never known it. He would never mention it, never used it as an illustration, but he did have the ambition when he, before that happened, that he was gonna be a church organist that's what he wanted to be. And of course, that got taken away from him. And then later on, Robert said that all people, all of us, experience deep, great wounds in our lives and that we learn to live with them either neurotically or heroically. You know? And, and uh, heroes become uh, great teachers, artists, mystics, and um, neurotics go into politics. So. <laughs> It's not my notes. Uh, 
So after my encounter with Robert, uh, I started in my teaching here to use the phrase journey into wholeness um, for the journey that we are on. We're making a journey from uh, fragmentation into wholeness. We're going to talk about this next Sunday. And then I got introduced to the work of John Sanford, who was also a Jungian analyst, but in addition, he was an Episcopal priest, quite a biblical scholar. He wrote a commentary on the Gospel of John. Um, John Sanford also wrote many great books about dreams and dream interpretation. And it was from John Sanford that I got the phrase, if you have a dream and don't honor it, that's like getting a letter from God and not reading it. So after encountering John Sanford, I changed this theme to being inhabiting the kingdom within. Now, what we now know with more clarity than ever is that Jesus likely never used the word kingdom, never used the word empire. So after joyfully and gratefully riding along with the Jesus Seminar for several years, I realized that knowing for sure what Jesus actually said about anything is very difficult to know. It's complicated by the fact that we don't have the language in which Jesus spoke, which is Aramaic. And... Um, so not knowing what Jesus actually said, but having it through Greek and then through various interpretations and so all that sort of thing, what can we imagine that Jesus actually said when he was inviting people to come into what? And what the scholarship now is saying, and this makes the most sense to me, is that Jesus is inviting people into a new family relationship with him and the family that he was creating, the community that he was creating. And the phrase that has been given to that is the community of empowerment. And since Jesus was a non-dual teacher, it makes sense that this community of empowerment is both an outer reality and an inner reality. So the teachings of Jesus have something to do with our outer world and with our inner world. <clears throat> I was thinking um, while I was working on this, um, most of you have, I know you have, attended a high school commencement service, your own. And most of you have attended a college or university commencement service. Your own, right? I, I, can, I can almost guarantee, because I've given a few commencement speeches, that one of the phrases in every commencement speaker's, it's obligation in the contract that you sign when you do it, that you will use the phrase, if there's one thing in this talk I want you to remember, it is, and I bet your commencement speaker said that, and I bet you can't remember what it was. <laughs> I frequently said, if there's one thing I want people to remember about my teaching in here, I'm not going to ask you what it is because it will hurt my feelings if you don't remember. The one thing I want people to remember about my teaching is that God is not up there. Remember that, and it'll all be worth it. God is here. God is here. Non-dual reality. 
But I'd add to that is that the community of empowerment has an inner and an outer reality. And I don't think we're going to understand the teachings of the Lord's Prayer or any of the teachings of Jesus if we don't embrace that last line. It's true here and it's true both places at the same time. What I'm actually likely to be remembered for is my harping on the need to use turn signals. <laughs> At, um, have a daily spiritual practice, that's it, I can do it. Having a daily spiritual practice brings up the topic of religion and people don't want to talk about it for a wide variety of reasons. I am aware of all the criticisms that can be leveled at organized religion. I got some this week on the email. Um, and they're, they're deserved. Um, many of them are really, really well deserved. Church is boring. Church doesn't pay attention. Church is not inclusive. I mean, all the stuff that you have heard about. But I'm also aware of the humongous contributions that organized religion has made over the millennia to benefit the earth and its inhabitants in a ton of ways. So though I am aware that some of you have suffered, some of you seriously at the hands of religion's representatives, uh, I'm also aware at the moment that this gathering is the result of organized religion, the benefit and the beneficiary of organized religion. So when people created the Lord's Prayer, they did it out of a religious context, not the way that we think about religion. Um, but here's what they did. They got together in small groups, and they reflected on their identity as Jews. They maintained that identity. They reflected on stories that Jesus told, They shared goods with each other, and they ate a meal together. All right? Across the plaza in the cathedral, we call that the service of the word and the service of the table. And in some version, that pattern of religious ritual has been carried on for millennia. We got it from the Jews, who were liturgical geniuses. Um, most of our scripture, the Gospels, were shaped by Jewish liturgy and thought. Right? So then they left these small gatherings, and they went out into the world to live their lives empowered by the energy, which is love, encouragement, material good, joy, forgiveness, that they had experienced in the group. And they took the words of this prayer with them. Oh, that prayer's not up right now. So religion, religious ritual, religious function, helps serve us in creating an identity. It gives us meaning. Our religion gives us stories and narratives, rituals, beliefs, that not only help us make sense of the world, but also can help us survive the really difficult, brutal ways that this world can sometimes be, right? 
You are going to grow old, get sick, and die. If you're lucky. That's the way. And, and, and so people who draw on religious insights to endure that, to bear that with joy and hope and meaning, that's a benefit that they get from their religion. And I think that this is essential. I mentioned the reason I taught the class I did last week is that in life we can be overwhelmed or feel abandoned, those two things, and then we have this, uh, these adaptive ways of dealing with it, and we're not careful, they drag us off the path, and religion can help us bring us back. Because one of the functions, good function of the Enneagram can be, so that we can adapt in either healthy ways or we can be neurotic. It's our choice. So if a religion and practicing a religion helps make people moral, dedicated, gives them a sense of worth, of belonging, it's wonderful. But that's not enough. There are a lot of good people made good by their religion and their religious communities who never experience a transformation of consciousness. They never experience a liberation though it can be shattering, of their ego. And when that happens, religion begins to be misused. So people believe in myths and doctrines and dogmas, and they perform the rituals believing that it makes them right and makes them better and makes their group the in-group and the others the out-group. They're in the right, God is on their side, and they are on track for eternal wonderment. That's a bad use of religion. But religion can serve another function. And, and this is where we see in the communities of Jesus' followers that produce this prayer, that function. For them, their religious beliefs and practices completely shattered their former identities. They were no longer who they had been. They were now new people. They had a new identity. They had a new family. They had new brothers and sisters. And if you read the story rightly, their beliefs and practices didn't make them comfortable. It put them in the seat of revolution. Who they thought themselves to be and who they thought they belonged to got totally transformed and they began to see that the way of Jesus was not about requirements, it was about relationships. They began to see that the way of Jesus was not about being correct, it was about being connected. And who here doesn't need this? To be released from the ways our ego can so easily trap us, and now I'm getting into what I want to talk about next week when um, we deal with it specifically with the Our Father phrase. The, 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 the culture we live in makes us be fragmented and withdrawn and numb and not here, not on the path. And who of us doesn't want and need to live lives in a world where openness melts those defenses and, and healthy relationships ground us in sanity and where compassion outpaces the meanness of our culture and where care and compassion outshine despair. 
Now there is a renowned linguistic scholar. His name is Neil Douglas Klotz. Uh, you can look him up on the internet. Uh, he was, oh God, I think he was Roman Catholic in his upbringing, but maybe I'm mistaken about that. I think he would now consider himself Sufi in the Sufi tradition. He teaches Sufi wisdom and has got a wealth of things on the internet if you're interested. I met him through his writing about 50 years ago in a book called Prayers of the Cosmos in which he took what he thinks was the Aramaic version of Jesus' prayer and translates that Aramaic version into English. I want to read it to you to show you what an empowerment, empowering document this can be. Um, He's just a genius with, with language. So I, I, I just wanted you to know that uh, this is no new age thing. Uh, Neil has been working on this most of his lifetime. And um, I think he even has some <clears throat> YouTube videos of him saying the Lord's Prayer in Aramaic. So you're interested. O cosmic birther of all radiance and vibration, soften the ground of our being and carve out a space within us where your presence can abide. Fill us with your creativity so that we may be empowered to bear the fruit of your mission. Let each of our actions bear fruit in accordance with your desire. Endow us with the wisdom to produce and share what each being needs to grow and flourish. Untie the tangled threads of destiny that bind us as we release others from the entanglement of past mistakes. Do not let us be seduced by that which would divert us from our true purpose, but illuminate the opportunities of the present moment. For you are the ground and the fruitful vision, the birth power and fulfillment, as all is gathered and made whole once again. Amen, and so may it be. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and I'll see you here next week. Thank you.